Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your co-hosts, Ian Hamilton. And gobble, gobble, I'm not a turkey, but I'm your second co-host, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that were canceled after one season. Right, John? That's right. We have made a full meal out of these shows. We've got turkey. We've got stuffing. We got cranberries. We've got green bean casserole. And you know what? We are eating up every single one of these shows and figuring out what they did, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. This is our Thanksgiving episode. We are releasing it on a work holiday, on a bank holiday. Keep the safes locked up, ladies and gentlemen, because nobody's robbing the banks today. Nope. Or they could be. This could be a really prime like bank robbing holiday if people are listening to this on the day that this is released. All right. Hear me out. All right. We write a heist movie about a heist on Thanksgiving. Okay. What's it called? Uh, it's called Steal Your Giblets. That's a great title. And you know what? That's a title of a fake movie that would probably come up on the show that we're covering today. Thank God you're here. An improv competition show. 2007 on NBC. We'll get more into the weeds with that one. Uh, but before that, we normally say, what have we been watching? But today, Ian, what TV are you thankful for? I don't think this is anything new on this podcast, but upon reflecting in the last year, I am so thankful for the rehearsal. Mm. And I am so thankful for the last season of uh, Better Call Saul. Okay. And... Maybe it's because I watched it so recently, but man, I loved Severance. I cannot wait for season two. I mean, those three shows are ultimately very unique, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe that's why they stick out to me. Obviously, Better Call Saul is the Breaking Bad thing, but I think it really became its own thing in respects to the lawyering. When it comes to all of the... uh, drug cartel stuff it's that that part is breaking bad yeah yeah uh john what are you thankful for in tv the thing i'm most thankful for especially recently is atlanta and that it capped off a phenomenal four season run with like an actual finale ian have you watched uh, the fourth season of atlanta yet i still haven't watched season three man season three is all over the place season four is a little bit more specific I mean, it still does its own thing for sure. And I went into the final episode being like, you know what? There is a good chance that this is just going to be another anthology episode and they're just going to flip us the bird and walk away. But they didn't. They actually brought the crew together. They did a finale. It actually made you think about the finality of things in a way that a finale should. I was just like, I had had no expectations that it would stick a landing i knew it would stick a final episode but to bring it all together it it made me cry it made me laugh so hard i love atlanta it's one of the best shows that's ever been on tv and the fact that it went out as high as it did made me so 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 happy 
Man, it's tough to stick the landing on a finale. I mean, just ask Game of Thrones. Especially when the show is as like disparate and weird and is like built on sort of alienating the audience and subverting expectations. The fact that you can still deliver something that's wholly satisfying. I mean, mwah, mwah, mwah. Licking my fingers. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, you know what I still need to watch is the last half season of Pen15. Yeah, it's really good. I bet that has a good finale. It does. Yeah, it's very satisfying and sad and heartwarming and everything that that show does phenomenally. Uh, You talking about Atlanta made me think about how one of the stars of Pen15 is going to be in the Mr. and Mrs. Smith show with Donald Glover. Maya Erskine? Erskine? Is she in it? Yes. Is it? Yeah, she replaced uh, Phoebe... Waller-Bridge. Right. I always get her and Phoebe Bridges. Bridgers. Bridgers. You're just like a syllable off, like consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with every ending, there's a beginning. And with every beginning, it's showtime. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! In 2007, NBC brought the hit Australian series, Thank God You're Here, to U.S. Airwaves. Series co-creator Rob Sitch found out the hard way that we prefer dogs and brats, not shrimp on our Barbies, as the show was canceled after seven episodes. (laughs) I can tell you like that one. I did, I did. That made me happy. I was trying to incorporate the phrase, there's shacks in the water. (laughs) <laughs> which our Australian friends told us that if you ever want to do an Australian accent, you start with there's sharks in the water and then you can just keep talking. Oh, man. I found a great new phrase to get into an Irish accent. Please. I watched the filmed version of the musical Heathers, which was filmed in London's West End. It's a musical that takes place in America. So all the British actors have American accents. And until the very end, during the curtain call, uh, the woman who's playing Veronica, she takes her final bow and she turns around and she goes, give it up for the Heather's Band in this beautiful Irish accent. And now that's just by phrase. Give it up for the Heather's Band. You know, we're down in Doolin. We're just uh, playing it up for the people at the mandolins. I love it. It kind of reminds me of uh, in Lord of the Rings at the end. Aragorn has this one line. That is for some reason an Irish accent that no other line he says is. He's like, let the Lord of the Black Land come forth. And you're like, what just happened? I know Vigo Mortensen is like Venezuelan and Dutch and he's like all over the place and he has some weird accent combinations. He's the Anya Taylor-Joy of Gen Xers, I think. I'm going to need an explanation. Anya Taylor-Joy, she is like... British by way of Venezuela, but also was born in America. It's a very interesting accent. It's very unique. You know, John, this conversation so far is what we call chasing the shiniest ball in improv, (laughs) right? We found one little nugget that seemed fun to play with, and then we latched onto it, and we just followed it down the accent road. But you're right. We're not here to talk about accents. We are here to talk about improv. And we're here to talk about, thank God, you're here. Ian, I think it would be good to maybe regale the listeners with our improv prowess. What do you think? Yeah. um, Okay. (laughs) I did improv like really hardcore, improv sketch and stand up for like 
six years in Chicago. I did uh, IO's. It's not a conservatory. What do they call program. it? Program. It's just a program class. Right. Uh, for those of you not in the comedy, no. IO is a break off of Second City, which if you don't know what that is, then look up Tina Fey. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I did IO and then I was in Second City's conservatory. I don't know. I performed a lot. And then I did a couple classes at Annoyance, which I know, John, is more your route. Yes, I followed in my friend's footsteps when I was living with him. I took classes at I.O. I took classes at The Annoyance. I worked at The Annoyance for two years. I took a long break from improv. I'm back doing it again now in Milwaukee, doing things at the Interchange Theater and Comedy Sports. So I love it there. Improv has a very dear place in my heart, which I feel like it has turned sour for you over the years. Yes, I feel like there is far more bad improv than there is good improv. Oh, yeah. And at this point, I'm just, I I can't be the happy, supportive audience member that the medium requires. It does. It is a group of people that are smiling at people that they love. And as we've made it very clear before, I'm a nice boy. I love nice things. I love teamwork. Teamwork is a beautiful thing. And... I really like the people that I play with. Yeah. Also, I think I really fell in love with storytelling. And Mm. the frustrating thing to me about improv or improvisation is that... God. (laughs) (laughs) Take off your freaking beret and speak like a human. (laughs) Fine. I'll I'll just roll my turtleneck down. I just fell in love with like storytelling and an improv. It's really tough to tell a story like that actually means something with well-rounded characters. The best of them do it well. Yeah. There's a team called three Pete that Chris red came out of and a lot of great uh, writers and actors and comedians from second city sort of, I think a lot of them kind of broke off of it. Who's I am. Uh, Oh, is I out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're all in New York and LA and Chicago now, but they were probably the best team I ever saw at like knowing where everyone was going and being able to tell a story with it. I mean, I saw like cool poignant stories in, in other places. It's just it's just not very consistent for me. Whereas like you do if you do comedy sports right now, you're doing a lot of games, correct? Yeah, a lot of games. It's very fast-paced. A friend of mine described it as if like the Second City or IO form of improv is a baseball game, the comedy sports way of things is a home run derby or like a slam dunk contest or something like that. It's all just hits. And I mean, that's where the most popular improv TV show kind of comes from. I think the only like really successful improv TV show that has ever been is Whose Line Is It Anyway, right? Yeah, at least as far as filming it in front of a live audience. Like in all the articles I read about Thank God You're Here, they compare it to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which improvises, but there is an outline. Oh, John, you don't watch Curb, so you didn't know that. Well, I mean, I knew that it's improvised, but like, I also think that, yeah, everyone is in on the joke, which is not the case with Thank God You're Here. So the premise of Thank God You're Here 
is essentially that you have a group of performers that know what the scene is, uh, and you have guest performers who are celebrities. These celebrities are given a costume, they are walked through a door, and they don't know anything that is on the other side of that door. They are greeted by one of the performers who is in the know, who says, thank God you're here, introduces them to the premise, and essentially the guest performer has to improvise their way through what is already sort of pre-set up for them. I feel like some of the performers were dressed in a costume where we knew and they knew what they were getting themselves into. George Takei was dressed as a surgeon. And lo and behold, when he walked through that door, he was doing surgery. He was in an operating room. It was exactly what he thought it would be. But then there were other times when they subverted the expectations with the costume. Yeah. Like there was one, Nicole Sullivan like came in with like a neon yellow tank top and she ended up being like a really bad teacher. And so she had no idea what that was. So it definitely felt like they were modulating the expectations to potentially the level of experience that that performer might have improvising. Although Anna Gasteyer, who had probably one of the strongest performances, yeah, um, she was dressed as a superhero and then lo and behold, she was at a Comic-Con. Yeah, but that know. could have also been like just a superhero scene or I don't think that the panelness of it was as obvious, but that's a little that's true. thing. And there seem to be a couple types of scenes that they like to do. Like a couple of them were, they were dressed as a musician and they walked in and okay, they're, they're in a recording booth, just mm-hmm. like you think. Uh, there were a couple of them where they're giving a presentation of some kind, which I believe is a pretty common improv game, right, John? Yeah. They're given, it's called like an endowment, like you're given an accent or you're given a profession or you have to live up to that thing. It is an expectation. Right. And then some of them were, you're a talk show house. Like there are a couple like that, right? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you're just plopped right into a scene where you're dressed as an explorer and look, you're with a couple other explorers. Yeah. And you're exploring. (laughs) Aren't we all? We're all just searching. Ian, you said that this was based on an Australian show. Can you go into that a little bit? It actually, surprisingly, it was a big hit in Australia. And I looked, it had done two seasons in Australia, or series, as they called down there. Oh, man, those silly wackadoo down-unders. Yeah, talk about being on the complete opposite side of the world as us, right? (laughs) They did two series in 2006, and it's described as a smash hit in Australia. And I looked at the numbers, and it was like 2 million viewers per episode. Oh, yeah. Which I guess in Australia is a smash hit. I don't know. Big deal. Big deal. It's just a whole lot of desert down there. So I don't know how many people there are for that to be considered a smash hit in 2006. I just know that wouldn't be considered a smash hit here in 2006. Well, you're going to be in Australia around shortly after this episode airs so you can report back to us about the authentic Australian experience. That's right. My wife and I are going on our honeymoon two years after being married because of, you know, COVID. 
just to watch uh, the Australian version of Thank God You're Here in its native land, which I think is a really admirable cause. I'm going above and beyond for this podcast, and I'm even dragging my family down with me. Yeah, you are uh, a method podcast host. I've described you <laughs> as such in that way. I uh, walk around with a microphone uh, talking into nothing. <laughs> so this show actually had 20 spinoffs or 20 syndicated what? versions <laughs> in different countries. Yeah. As recently as uh, 2022, actually, the Vietnamese one is the longest running one with six seasons. Because hmm. even in Australia, it only had four. Mm. So, and an interesting note is that they spun it off in China. They had like all these difficulties with the scenarios because you're not allowed to make fun of authority or anything. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Not only like, politicians and military or police but also like doctors they couldn't make fun of and then there was something where they uh were trying to do like a babysitting scene and the producers were like no we don't have babysitters here because of the one child policy so no one will get this wow yeah that's super interesting i mean mostly that's it uh an nbc took it up as a mid-season replacement in 2007 fun fact was out for the most part during that magical time that studio 60 was taking its break between uh its first 17 episodes and its last five the glorious what was it five months that they were off the air or something like that no it's like five weeks or something Oh, okay okay yeah so this was seven episodes it debuted actually after Deal or No Deal on oh, a Monday. Good lead in. And then they eventually shifted it to what was supposed to be its regular day, which was Wednesdays. Mm. But all that business nonsense is going to come later, John. Right now, we're going to take a quick commercial break and then come back to some highlights. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. Highlight. We would be remiss to cut out the host and MC of the show, David Allen Greer. Who I believe dyed his hair between the pilot and the second episode. Did you notice that? Thank you, because on the IMDb picture, it's just him in a red shirt behind an innocuous blue screen. (laughs) Um, Did I use innocuous right? Inconspicuous? Yeah, I think inconspicuous is better. And uh, he's got gray hair, but yeah. then the rest of the show, he doesn't. So he definitely dyed his hair. Okay. Really glad you I feel vindicated that, that. Yeah. His purpose mainly is over and over and over again to explain to the audience that this is all made up and that there's no script that the celebrities have seen and that they're walking through a door. And he introduces them and he, he like starts to do a little banter with them, but then cuts them off and goes, okay, walk through the door. Yeah. Here's your you toolbox monkey. Yeah. Like go through the freaking door. 
Yeah. Yeah, they always introduced that segment as if like something more was going to happen, but yeah. nothing ever did. No. And then occasionally he would jump into scenes as well as like a special guest character. He was. He took a lot of pride in himself when he did get into those scenes. <laughs> when he did wear those wigs. And then we have <laughs> the judge and jury of the show is Dave Foley, who decides who wins this improv show at the end so they have four different celebrities and he just at the end is like oh you were the best one and they give out this cheap looking door award yeah that they always talk about how cheap it is and no one ever cares about who wins no one does no so each of the celebrities has an individual scene that they do with the sort of ensemble cast and then they all four of the celebrities come together and do one group scene at the end as well. Right. Before we talk about some of those individual scenes, I just wanted to bring up the ensemble, which was always the same handful of people. The only person I knew in there was Mary Beth Monroe, who was in Workaholics and um, The Good Place and yeah. other stuff. Yeah, she's Mindy St. Clair, the occupier of the medium place in The Good Place. And she's fantastic (laughs) in in that. And she's great here, too, honestly. I felt like she was one of the ones that actually had, like, some repartee with the performers, the guest celebrities sometimes. Yeah, but it was tough because... So this show was critically criticized for sometimes sticking to the script too much when it came to the ensemble performers. And part of me wasn't sure how much of that was the ensemble trying to push the scenario or the producers making them do that. You know what I mean? I fully think that it was the producers doing that. I think that they these performers were hired to be improvisers against non-experienced improvisers. And what they ended up doing was just kind of creating improv Mad Libs where you would Thank just you. have these performers asking questions of the celebrities and then the celebrities needed to respond with an answer and then it was a question and an answer and a question and an answer and that's how the entire scenes were structured the setups would be like oh welcome doctor and then they just like hold out their hand to them and they'd say doctor say your name yeah yeah you know, sometimes it was funny or sometimes I'd try to make it funny. And sometimes I kind of appreciated when they didn't try to make it funny. Okay. You know? Yeah, I did too. I liked it. I think it was worked best when it was just like Bill. And that seemed to get like the biggest laugh. Well, usually if they're like dressed as a pirate or a caveman or something like that, and you expect them to say something like, I am Ugg of the org tribe, but they're like, my name's Fred, and then the audience laughs because it's ri- their costume's ridiculous, but their name is normal. Whoa, subverting expectations. Ian, should we talk about the, the group of celebrities that we've got uh, that go through these magical doors? Oh, yes. So they're costumed, and they walk into this scenario that they're sometimes really forced into. Um, I think... The best way to talk about all the different performers, because there were seven episodes and there were four performers in each episode, is I just kind of lumped them into groups. And I wanted to see if you think my lumpings were correct, if we agree, where we're at 
engaging these performers' performances. I do not know how Ian lumped. I don't know his lumping thology, so I'm excited to play this game. All right, Ian, what's your first lump? The first kind of performer I call the throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks type of performer. I'm going to, I think Brian Cranston is one of those. Yes. And I think that let's go Tom Arnold is one of those. I think that's probably a good point, but I didn't put Tom Arnold. I put Harlan Williams and Tom Green. Those are fair. Yes. Those are the chaotic performers. And you wouldn't like put Brian Cranston in the same conversation as Tom Green and Harlan Williams. But when you watch Brian Cranston, who comes in with a sort of heavy metal like wig and a British accent and just starts kissing everybody immediately, you're like, you are chaos incarnate. You are Malcolm in the middle, Brian Cranston, not Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston. Right. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm uh, doing a rock and roll and I'm singing my song. Oh, you're my girlfriend and you're my wife. And uh, I'm singing a song about how I love you both. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brian Cranston kissing everyone in the first episode. I was like, oh, the audience is laughing at how outrageous this is getting and how big and over the top it was getting. And I was like, I bet so many different Actors are going to come on the show and think that they're crazy for kissing the other performers, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I felt that instantly. Ian, what what was your second lump? My second lump was the old. Oh, the old is definitely Kurtwood Smith. Check. And George Takei. Check. Okay. Well, who else you got in there? This is actually my longest list. We also have <laughs> Edie McClurg, yeah. who is the secretary in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then we have uh, Wendy Malick I put in there as well. Oh, I wouldn't put her. I'll, I'll tell it. you why okay, in a second. Please do. Please do. But I also have Richard Kind and Fred Willard. And okay. here's why. Lay it because on they all seem to be a little bit slower, a little bit deer in the headlights. And I felt like the show didn't give them as free reign as some of the other actors. And that's even with improv veterans like Richard Kind and Fred Willard. Okay. I can kind of see your logic, but I think that of among that list, Edie McClurg, Wendy Malick, and Richard Kind sort of went beyond that and were able to, yeah, they kind of got put into a bit of a box with their scenes, but they were able to rise above it. Like Wendy Malick, especially Wendy Malick and Edie McClurg, both of them had like sit down scenes. Like it was like, sit down, you're about to get scolded. Edie McClurg was like in marriage counseling. Wendy Malick was a cheerleader who was a little like promiscuous, also a little mean, but they both embraced those roles, I think pretty well. And Richard Kind was just stuck as like a uh, shock jock, like Foley artist who just needed to keep hitting things, which was just like a... Yeah, it kind of forced him into a thing, but he was able to just embrace it in a way that I don't think the others that you mentioned did. I agree with you about the Richard Kind thing because I just couldn't really remember what he did very well. And now that you're describing it, it's because they didn't give him much to do. It was not a visually dynamic scene, but like when you think about what it was, he was actually trying stuff, which I think the others in that list were not. But I digress. Yeah, 
that's a good long list. Wendy Malik, I guess I could also put into this next category, which I call done dirty. Done dirty. Okay. They were done dirty because uh, they went into a scene and they tried to establish, they, they threw out jokes, they threw out what the scene was about, and the ensemble just kept going, nope, you're oh wrong. This is the scene. Gosh, yes. This happened a lot. So yes. I'm going to go with Joel McHale was in there. Yes. And I will also go with Nicole Sullivan. Who else do you have in there? I might be mm, wrong there. No, I don't, I don't think Nicole Sullivan. Monique yes. had a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Monique was a little bit lost, but I also thought they did her no favors. They did a lot of like, at first I thought maybe it was the types of jokes they were going for where she's like, oh, uh, we're at an AA convention. And they're like, nope, it's a birthday party. Yeah. So there's a big thing for those that don't improvise or have never taken an improv class. It's like, yes, and you... It's probably the only thing you've heard about improv if you've heard about improv. Exactly. Don't deny. Don't deny the reality that another person has set up. And this show denies and denies and denies these celebrities that they're basically spoon feeding them stuff like, what is your name? My name is Chet. No, what are you talking about? Your name is Becca. Like, and it it does that constantly in order to like stick to that script that we were talking about. Exactly. Uh, so I also put Jason Alexander in there. I was thinking, because, yeah. 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 If you remember, he tried to like make it, they were on a Star Trek type show that was canceled. Yeah. But then they were like, they presented to him a problem, which he was supposed to fill in like a Mad Lib. Yeah. And his fill-in answer was we were canceled and then they were like nope we're about to fight this alien zorg yeah and then the alien zorg came up on the tv screen and then ended up entering the scene as well and it was like why did you even give him the option to answer then exactly force this on him it's it felt like you were just like putting somebody on the spot for literally no reason but what's your next look and I kind of felt like Wendy Malick was in there too, where she kept trying to, she was like a cheerleader in a principal's office and then give her an opportunity to like, what did you do that brought you in here? Or try explaining yourself. And she would. And they'd be like, that's not why you're in here. Yeah. Deny, deny, deny. What's your next lump? Uh, so I also have the crass. Ooh, the crass. Okay. That's definitely Kevin Nealon. And I know what you're thinking of, but no, I didn't put him on there. Really? Okay. Yes. Paul Rodriguez. Yes. And Wayne Knight. No, I put okay. uh, Paul Rodriguez, Chelsea Handler, and Shannon Elizabeth. Oh yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Because uh, Chelsea Handler, actually, I thought she was really funny, but she also it was a lot of diarrhea jokes. A lot of a lot of work in blue. And Shannon yeah. Elizabeth, uh, yeah, was just going for the lips, going for the lips, especially in their big group scene at the end there. Yeah. But it was also the kind of thing where obviously she is not used to improvising. I mean, I think she she's famous for American Pie, but she was a model maybe first. Yeah. I mean, she is typically typecast as the attractive person and i think she played into that while also being game for whatever people were throwing at her 
Yeah, it's just she just really leaned into the sexual jokes and the the cheekiness. And I don't really blame her for it. Actually, anyone that went overtly blue, I don't blame them at all. No, especially doing it within like network sitcom standards. The fact that they were able to still do that, it it worked out pretty well. Yeah, they kept having to say thing instead of penis. (laughs) Speaking of the next penis, what is your next lump? Nailed it. Who do you think nailed it? Angela Kinsey for me. And for me, Jane Lynch. That's who I would say nailed it. What about you? I love that. I have Wayne Knight number one. Yeah. Where he was the doctor mm-hmm. uh, presenting some kind of, oh, it was like a miracle product or something. Yeah. Wayne Knight was presenting miracle products. And he, I, we will say Wayne Knight is the only performer to go on twice. Right. And the second person I had was Anna Gasteyer. I, I, yeah. She blew it away. Absolutely. She was incredible. They even pimped her into singing, and she was the only one who did a legitimately good job. Absolutely. Yeah, she was game and fast and funny and interesting. And they, I think all of these people like, came in with strong characters that, I mean, and this might have just been the setup for the scenes that they were in too, but like they were actually given some room to like add their own personality to it. So the last category I have, I call the lost and that's for the people that are just lost. And I'm going to give Kurtwood Smith and George Takei leeway in this uh, scenario (laughs) because they don't deserve it. Okay. It was just fun to see them there. God bless them for trying. Eddie K. Thomas uh, throwing on a black scent was uh, pretty rough. And uh, Bill Bellamy also seemed completely lost trying to handle uh, fitness equipment. But who else do you have in here? I have Bill Bellamy. Uh, the Eddie K. Thomas, I thought, went surprisingly well up until the very end when he did the black scent. Yeah. Um, I appreciated that they called him out. Yes. Um, I think that me and you are going to butt heads on my other two, though. Because I had pregnant Nicole Sullivan and Angela Kinsey. Wow. Fully disagree with that. Yeah. Well, after our discussion, I think maybe you could say Nicole Sullivan got done dirty also. That they denied her a lot. But Angela Kinsey, and here's my thought process. They gave her a scene where she was being interviewed on a talk show And she was put in the, I think, unique scenario out of all of these where she had to sit down and just talk and just make stuff up. And that was it. And it's it's a hard place to be in. And I I didn't really like the accent she chose. I, I felt like she was struggling to keep her head above water in it, to be honest. Oh, see, I thought that they gave her something where she was just going to be making stuff up and didn't need to rely on a plot because she has that improv background. She does know how to carry a scene. And I thought even when she was sitting down, she was like doing stuff with her legs and talking about like her heels. And like she was making ways to make it a little bit more exciting visually than what this offer was to her. And And you, you put her in the nailed it category, right? Oh yeah. I thought she was great. I love, yeah. I would say top three or four of the scenes for me. No, but I mean, we agree on the Bill Bellamy one. That was, he was at that point, the new host of Last Comic Standing. Yeah. And, you know, there were a couple of good jokes, I guess, but it was, he he was the roughest and he seemed like he thought he did the best. 
Oh, he had the confidence for it, but yeah, he was he was a little slow and he was a little lost and it didn't help anything. Now, speaking of not helping anything, let's take a quick commercial break and get to some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to all of our shows. It could be the best. It could be the worst. It could be the wackiest. It could be the improviest. Whatever we have decided to bestow upon these shows, it is final. There is no turning back. Each of us get two Dunzo Awards that are not made out of cheap plastic or shaped like doors to give out to these shows. Ian, what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award, which is shaped like a very expensive thumbs up. Cool. The Golden Thumbs Up Award I give to Wayne Knight number two, uh, where he was in a scene where he was like a Roman legionnaire or something. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to the emperor. And in the scene... I don't even know if he got pimped into doing this or if he just did it out of nowhere. He had this like really tight, really quick Shakespearean style rhyme that he put together. That was really good. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I don't even know if it was funny. It was just really impressive because impressive can be funny in that context. Yeah. Because uh, comedy is based off of expectations. Mm hmm. And we don't expect somebody to be that clever and that quick. Therefore, it can be funny. Yeah. I wonder if they had brought back multiple performers like multiple times. I would be curious to see how they evolved because I feel like Wayne Knight one was him sitting down in a chair and responding like Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight two was like a character who was responding really quick to stuff. He had one of my favorite lines. He... He, a woman came in and he kissed her and it's like, that's one way to greet your sister. And his response to that was, well, she looks like my daughter, which is just a great line. Right. And uh, he felt like one of the most grounded performers to me, as in like he could just plant himself on the stage and deliver his lines straight out without much hesitation. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was just rock steady and I, I really, really liked him. And that's actually in both instances. Uh, John, what's your first Dunzo? My first Dunzo award is the Best Kid Award. And that goes to the seed with uh, Nicole Sullivan. Because there, so this Nicole Sullivan seed, she's supposed to be this like teacher who is making all of these kids do chores for her. And normally we've got this principal cast of about four actors, but there's this girl that comes in she's probably like 15 she's like i did your laundry mrs whatever and nicole sullivan just like slaps her on the butt and like talks to her about like stuffing her bra and this girl is so game and she like genuinely responds to nicole sullivan like saying things it was so refreshing because she didn't have 
pretty much anything to do other than here's your laundry and then I'm supposed to leave. But she actually like engaged with the performer and that I think really like elevated that scene. And I just wish there was more of that. I wish they gave the performers a little bit more leeway to let the scene go where it needed to go. She had an incredible give and take with Nicole Sullivan. I mean, she came in as this like high energy, happy kid. And then she kept going for it. Even like Nicole Sullivan, like slapped her on the butt, which I thought was a little weird. Well, so yeah, but, but also, I don't know. She was pregnant at the time. So I, I don't know. She could get away with a lot. I think <laughs> um, she was very pregnant at the time. Yeah. You should bring up like, she must've been eight months. Yeah. But yeah, she was an incredible uh, young actress that, was a refreshing change of pace and she was totally in the scene and she was responding and she was making jokes and it was probably the best ensemble performance out of the seven episodes. And like you said, to your point where it was nice to see the scene going, like just chasing the shiniest ball or like, you know, rolling with the punches or whatever you want to call it, because there were times like with, um, Harlan Williams and Tom Green even, which I didn't think they had the best sets or anything, but what I appreciated about their scenes was they came in, people were like, thank God you're here, and then they just kind of like forced everyone to react to them, like playing around with the set or being like, uh, I think Harlan Williams, they asked him a question, and then he was like, I'll answer that, but first let me... Take a hit off of that hashish pipe you're smoking. The guy had like an old timey tobacco pipe in his mouth. And, you know, they they both forced the scenes the way that other people couldn't. I think it's just that it was a good change of pace. It was. Yeah. Speaking to that, though, too, there were times that I was like genuinely concerned for the ensemble cast with the sort of brazenness at which these performers were putting them in uncomfortable situations. Like there was no like, let's agree to this. We are doing this. It was just like the celebrities would come in and just force themselves onto these people. And I don't know, I could kind of see the actors who are in the scenes, like calculating, like, is this going to be okay? Am I comfortable with this? And the celebrities were just like, no, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to kiss you. I'm going to break stuff. I'm going to like make, I'm going to objectify the hell out of you. Like Kevin Nealon just like kept like staring at women's boobs and like putting them in like weird sexual positions. Well, here's where I disagree with you on the Kevin Nealon of it all, because when the other celebrities would just grab people and kiss them or whatever. I felt like he put the two women in a position to be like, I'm not going to touch you, but I am going to make you touch her. Yeah, that's fair. It wasn't as bad as actually some of the other ones, in my opinion. I think that's fair, but it also, I think the thing that stuck out to me about the Kevin Nealon scene was that it felt like so much more lecherous because of how slow it played out, I feel like. They're yeah. just like, because you gave him so much of that control to manipulate that situation. And it just, I don't know. Well, Part of me felt like he knew he got himself into something. And then he was like, well, I guess I have to do this now. And that's why it was so slow. Like, like it, it felt more like bad improv to me than. Yeah, like a teaching scene. Nobody wants a teaching scene. Ian, what is exactly. your second Dunzo award? 
My second Dunzo Award goes to Best In-Scene Surprise. Oh. Uh, So one of the really fun things about this show was that sometimes in a scene they would have a bag and they'd be like, open up the bag and see what's inside. And then it'd be an object they'd never expect, right? Um, There's also an aspect of the show we have not discussed yet, which is in between the celebrity scenes, they did some pre-taped scenes that they would cut to and they'd edit together. Like they'd all do the same scenario. Like in this case that I'm about to talk about, they were all at a lot selling used cars. And Mm -hmm. so they have tape of all four of the celebrities doing the same scenario, but they can cut between their different jokes. And it was a nice change of pace because it was pre-taped and we just got the funny bits. Yeah. One of the things they did was there was a VW bug that they would open up and they'd be like, oh yeah, check out this. Uh, Oh, whoops, the door's broken. Then they open up the trunk and there's somebody tied up with their mouth duct tape in the back. And, Mm -hmm. uh, the celebrity as the salesperson would have to explain their way out of that. And I just thought it was really fun. Yeah, that was a good thing. I I liked a couple of those sort of things that they had the interstitials for. There was another good one where I think it was a group of people walking through like an old folks home. I was going to bring up the old folks home. This yes. is the dining room and it opened up to the bathroom. And like there was just like a dead guy that was just like laying there completely open things like that. Those were funny. There was also like a, a dating service one. I think that was like one where I thought Angela Kinsey also like really shined in because they would be like, yes. you say that you like to like murder and light things on fire. And Angela Kinsey would be like, yep, I'm a lot like stuff like that. Agreeable, adding to it, making, putting a character onto it. It just made it that much more fun. What's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo goes to the entire props department, and that is the most uneven Photoshop. So we had a lot of props that were given to these contestants, you know, like Wayne Knight, when he's a doctor selling pills, they would put his face on to like these pills or, you know, they would say, is this a picture of you in your 20s? And it's like them clearly Photoshopped onto there. Some of these photoshops I thought were like spot on and some I thought looked like absolute trash. I don't know what it was. I don't know what their sort of disconnect there happened to be, but it just was like like let's just let's just make this a little bit more consistent. I don't know. I didn't know what happened. I mean, that could have been that the prop was ordered last minute, you yeah. know. Uh an hour before a show, they're like, "Hey, can you just whip up a magazine cover with their face on it. And that's probably more the photoshops that were in a scene in front of the live audience as opposed to the ones that were in the pre-taped cutaways. See, I thought that there was this one in the pre-taped cutaway where it was like, I think, again, it was that dating service scene. Angela Kinsey's face was on like a very like muscled up body and it looked absolutely horrible. And then, like, the thing that made it so much more jarring was they actually did a really good job of uh, photoshopping, I think it was Fred Willard and Tom Arnold, onto these really muscular bodies oh, literally, yeah. like, two seconds before that. Again, just, like, what's the disconnect? I don't know. 
I think it's funny that that's something you would latch on to because to me, I think it's funny if it's good and it's funny if it's bad. Like, yeah, I don't I don't see any problem either way. I don't think it's like bad that it's bad Photoshop. I just found it to be distracting sometimes. And again, when you see a good example and then you see a bad one, just just make them all good or make them all bad. I don't really care if they're all bad. Who cares? Um. John, I've got a burning question for you. Lay it on me. Fire it up. Was there a performer that you thought would be good that ended up being bad? And was there a performer that you thought would be bad that ended up being good? Woo, that's hot. Well, that's a two-part burning question, so I think we need another sting right here. Woo, that's hot. I'll start with good performer that was disappointing. And for me, that was Joel McHale. And I think that might've been just like the scenario that he was in. He was this archeologist that was like exploring this like new tomb thing. And it was just too much going on. And Joel McHale is so good at like quick bits, like one liners. And anytime he tried to throw something in there, they would just shuffle him on to the next sort of thing. And so I felt like that was, really tough position for him to be in, but he also didn't really elevate it in well, that John, way. It was Joel McHale pre hair plugs. So he didn't That's have true. that Joel McHale confidence that he would soon get. Yeah. The one who I didn't know what to expect and I found myself to be pleasantly surprised. Honestly, I had some, a, a lot of my expectations were met across the performers. But mm-hmm. I think the one that actually elevated was Wendy Malick. I really thought she did a fun job with the the scene that she did. And I only really know her from dramatic stuff. I mean, she's this cheerleader. At one point, she like does a headstand. She has to also compete with Jerry Springer being like a surprise walk-on guest. And I thought she did a really nice job with that. She's very much playing like her character on Just Shoot Me, which is like a sex crazed older woman, basically. Like, and everyone's calling her a slut all the time. And she's like, yeah, I am. So I don't know. It just kind of fit her character type to me. And then I felt like some of the times she gave a response, it was just a straight response as opposed to a funny one and it wasn't I don't know it just it, it felt pretty flat for me the headstand was impressive I do like when performers do like a flat response and a funny response because when you're just always going for the joke it doesn't it like mutes itself it always it tends to like cancel itself out like anytime right. there were performers that were just like I'm gonna do this big thing all the time cough cough Tom Green cough cough it just yeah, it just drags and it doesn't, I feel like that's just as boring as if you're only giving flat responses. Yeah, but there's also no, there's nothing to build on here. Like if you want a foundation so that you can build a scene, like, yeah, give straight responses, but it, it just wasn't that type of show. So it just didn't work. Yeah. But that's not her fault. I did clock one line from Richard Kind that I thought was very sort of telling of this sort of general attitude towards it. He was being interviewed after his thing, after his scene. And he said, what do I comment on? 
They were all just noises, but I did them loud. That was really funny. I really like that. Ian, I've got a burning question for you now. Can you justify why this show was an hour long? Ooh, that's hot. I think this show should be a half hour. Yeah. Like, what sort of justifications, though, would you have for making this an hour? Four performers is not a bad amount. Four scenes is not a bad amount because they're only five minutes long. So even if something's not going well, it's over before it drags too hard. The idea of having them all perform together in a group scene at the end is pretty fun. And I like all of the in-between edited pre-tape stuff. So from that respect, I can justify it. What I cannot justify is all of the setup and all of the David Allen Greer and all of the Dave Foley. Like, just look at the audience and we're hosting this and this is quote-unquote improvised. Like, that stuff took up far too much time. Full disclosure, I was skipping 30 seconds at a time usually during the David Allen Greer and Dave Foley stuff because only because they just kept repeating themselves over and over again, watching these seven episodes back to back. Yeah. Dave Foley would have like a joke per that was fine, but it was always kind of the same thing. Like, Oh, this is stupid. Yeah. It's yeah. What are we doing here? This is weird. Yeah. Though, man, they, uh, that studio audience was huge. That was like the biggest studio audience I think I've ever seen. It was probably what, like three, four hundred people? I mean, it was bigger than any Tonight Show. Yeah. Uh, Maybe less than The Price is Right, more than a normally taped comedy show. Oh, I think it was more than The Price is Right. Mm. Because it went further back. It did go far back. Yeah. Well, why don't we take a quick commercial break, and when we get back, we'll see why the show that drew such a large studio audience didn't quite get the TV audience that it needed. And now a word from our sponsors. This show premiered on a Monday after Deal or No Deal, which was a big deal at the time, John. A very big show. So many briefcases. The premiere of this was actually able to build on its audience. Whoa. So the debut of this two-hour special. So the first time the show aired, it aired two episodes back-to-back. It was number one among men 18 to 34. Mm. And it kept... The first hour had a 3.6 rating when Deal or No Deal had a 3.3, and then its second hour kept a 3.1 rating, which is actually really good uh, because that's like the 10 to 11 o'clock slot. Yeah. Eastern. They always do this stuff Eastern. So with such, a, with such a big thing, what, what, what happened? Well, to quote Fred Willard in- uh, What happened? What happened? So then they aired three episodes on Mondays- after Deal or No Deal, in order to gain the audience, then moved it to what was supposed to be its regular slot on Wednesdays where it stayed. And uh, episode three, it was number one in the time slot 
for adults 18 to 49, which is the coveted demo. Yeah. Demo, right? Yeah. And by the time the last episode aired, uh, that audience had dropped in half. It was a one point. Uh, nine share, 4.6 million overall, which 2007, they were still dreaming of 2002, you know? <laughs> we all were on that even uh, Friends hangover. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not bad compared to today's numbers, actually really very good. But it, considering its audience fell almost in half and NBC just seemed to be flailing at the time, I mean... This was uh, the Studio 60 year, and it was a very long list of canceled shows this year. And I don't know if that's like a sign of things to come, because this is a year before the housing market dropped out, and then (laughs) TV just imploded, you know? Yeah. It was an interesting year, because that was the year that Heroes premiered, too, I think. So that was like their big thing. Which is why George Takei was on this show, was because he was on Heroes at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. it was a great thing for, like, cross-promotion, and it seemed like a relatively inexpensive thing to produce, but when you have something that drops so much in between there, it is tough to justify bringing it back because why not just create, like, a, a fresh new cheap thing that you can bring out to fill the schedule? This yeah. definitely seemed like a show that when they realized that Studio 60 was tanking or when they saw another show that they put a lot of money into was not doing well, they were like, quick, what what ideas do you have? And some guy who was like pushing bagels around was just like, well, like celebrities could improvise. He's like, brilliant. You get a producing credit. Right. And oh, the show that aired after Thank God You're Here was Medium, which the audience would always shoot up like 60% or something after this show. Yeah. So you could just see that people were not into this show. Uh, The critical response was paltry. Um, (laughs) Good use of paltry. Thank you. Everybody hated it. Most people thought it could be better. They thought that they did the actors dirty. Uh, A lot of people were irritated at how much the ensemble controlled the scene and ignored what the celebrities said. Yeah. I think that's completely justified. There was a good idea here. So between the audience dropping in half and the bad critical response, it seems obvious why they canceled it, but also I couldn't find any distinctive reason, right? That's me putting those two and two together because I'm like, it's a cheap show There's good crossover promotion. I still don't necessarily understand why they dropped it. So I looked into why the Australian series only lasted four seasons. Series. (laughs) And the creator basically said that um, they didn't want to overuse people. Like Mm. they had some of the same performers come back a handful of times. And after only three or four series they could already see that it was going to get tired if the same people kept coming back. And there were so few people that people felt like actually did well. Yeah. So it's an easy show to get tired of. Yeah. And it very quickly feels like retread, which 
I think me and you saw a mile away just watching the pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see after about two or three of these types of scenes, like, oh, they aren't letting these people react to anything. They are just throwing prompts at people for five minutes and hoping that something makes somebody laugh. And a lot of the critics had, like all of our qualms with it, they said the same stuff. I was actually kind of relieved to look everything up online and read other people being like, why are they doing this? Why are they they doing that? (laughs) What were they thinking? Why don't they care about the award? uh, Yeah, it was a temporarily frustrating experience for sure which i guess begs the question ian would you renew i would renew okay and i've thought about this a lot and i'm thinking i'm an executive in nbc in 2007 i think that there is enough here to mold into something better. I think that if you make a season two, you change up the format, you make it shorter, you make it, you learn from your mistakes where the ensemble is not controlling everything too much, and you cut down on the David Allen Greer time. I think there is a good show here, just not how it is and I know this sounds like I don't I don't know it sounds like I'm I'm do, making a push you know on this bet I'm not saying yes or no but <laughs> I just think that the foundation of this is very strong if done the right way and if you fire the creatives in charge of this and hire <laughs> other people it can be very good and very cheap and good for cross promotion and a decent show to throw on at whatever time because if you're not paying too hard attention, if you're not sitting down and watching it diligently, it's not a bad show. I think plenty of people can like it and think it's fun and not think too hard about it. You know? Yeah. It's mindless entertainment. You put it on in the background. Sometimes you'll laugh at something that pops up and it's silly enough. Yeah, it's silly enough. Silly enough is, I think, a very apt way of saying that. So, John, aptly put, would you renew? I'm going to take you on a journey to my answer, because I agree with you very much that there is a good show here. The premise of sending somebody into a scene that they don't know anything about and letting them react to stuff is in it in and of itself quite funny, especially when you have inexperienced people that are being guided by experienced people. I mean, you've probably seen improv shows where there are clearly some more seasoned veterans that are so good that they can guide people into a funny scene with somebody of inexperience. The other performers need to have more creative freedom to let the celebrities drive some of the decision-making. There needs to be fewer celebrities on each episode. I think if you made it a 1v1 thing and then ended with a two-person scene, 
that would be just as funny as a thing that is twice as long as what we are currently getting. I think that you focus less on sort of the big, like, set PC kind of things, and you make it a little bit more about the who these characters are and putting these things onto the celebrities. That is stuff that could be more funny, and I think excelled when they actually did that. That being said, they didn't do any of that, and so therefore I would not renew. And I don't have your optimism that they would actually make those changes. I don't have the optimism either, but I just think of it as like reality shows, variety shows, and talk shows retool all the time. Retool, but I think one of the foundational things that you would need is for this thing to be a half hour shorter. And I don't think that they would do that. Mm, yeah, I mean, I I definitely know that I am taking more leeway with my answer than I ever have before and I possibly ever will again. I sympathize with that because I was going through those exact same thoughts in my head. I very much sympathize with you and your Yeah, point. I mean, it could have been fun. They already have the costumes and the situation <laughs> and the character basically done, which in my opinion, in an improv scene, that's the hardest thing to come up with. I was thinking Who am the same I and thing. where are we and what are we doing? Exactly. Completely, completely agree. Coming to the sense of a shared reality is far and away the most difficult thing and is the thing that mo gets most often lost in bad improv. And right. so to take that away and give them something, great. But what they do with it, that is, again, it's Mad Libs. It's not comedy. Online, a lot of improv people called it Pimp-prov, which is when you, it's called pimping. There should be another name for it. Is there another name now, John? No, it's just pimping. How would you describe that? You put something on another person. You make them do something crazy that they wouldn't have necessarily thought of themselves. So, for example, there's one scene in the Bill Bellamy uh, fitness workout thing where the actor says to Bill Bellamy, what is the tagline for your line of fitness products? And he's about to say it. And she's like, well, don't say it. Sing it. That's pimping. And so often it's sing it. There's there's better ways. Right. There were other ways of doing it, but that's like the most common. Ian, was there a favorite scene that you had? Was there? Um, I really liked Wayne Knight. Oh, Fran Drescher. I thought Fran Drescher was awesome. Yeah, she was. She did a nice job. She was like presenting some sort of real estate development that they were going to build on a beach. And they, I think they gave her enough of like, here's something to talk about, but we're not going to stop you from talking. Either that or because like she's a lead, she's a creator, she's a writer. She knew how to just control it. You know what I mean? In ways yeah. that I think maybe other people don't. I think that's and completely Without fair. steamrolling it the way that Tom Green and Harlan Williams did. Boy. I did actually, I thought Tom Arnold did pretty good. Yeah, he did. He grosses me out, but yeah. Yeah, he talked a lot and he was kind of crass, but it always made sense. That's fair. Yeah. I think. Yeah, he started the scene like, leaving the bathroom and 
he was like, oh, I was just cooking. He's like, you were cooking in the bathroom? And he's like, yep, and I was cooking up something great. You know, he led it, he like leaned into it in that way. The performer that for me stood out far and away and I think was the best scene. I think Anna Gasteyer actually was probably a close second, but for me, number one, Jane Lynch. I thought her scene was really funny. She came on in these like pajamas and into this house that had been completely wrecked by a party. And the other performer was like her sister. And the way that Jane Lynch like immediately flipped the seed on her sister, started blaming her for stuff while also being like completely like pathetic when her parents came in and threw everything. It was, it just really worked for me as like actual comedy. Yeah. I mean, I thought Jane Lynch was great. Obviously she's Jane Lynch and uh, you know, she's no surprise. She is an annoyance uh, alum such as yourself. She and like Andy Richter performed a lot in that uh, Brady Bunch show that broke out in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I-, I remember them cutting her out at the knees a bit, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I remember being liking her, but not loving the scene. There was even like a an almost steamroll thing from David Allen Greer where she said something like, oh, that's my friend Leonard. And his character's name was supposed to be Raphael or something. And he was like, no, I think you left Leonard upstairs. I'm Raphael. I thought that was funny, though. That was funny. That was funny. But it was was probably the funniest thing David Allen Greer did. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, And the ensemble, I thought when they felt those moments to not just be puppets to the situation, I thought they all did well. It was just rare. Yeah, they played scared. And that's the thing I think annoyed me. Like they got this they, direction. They had to, though. Exactly. Yeah. They got this direction that they needed to stick to the script and move these things along as much as they can. So they didn't want to get fired. It's it, you could kind of get that sense from those ensemble performers. I think there's a good version of this type of thing. And I'm wondering, did you ever watch uh, Murderville with Will Arnett? Actually, I was waiting to see if it was renewed for a second season or not, because I figured we would watch it here. It's a good one. Like You have one professional improviser who is guiding the guest celebrity who doesn't know what is happening through all of these crazy scenarios. You can edit it, too, which is another, I think, key thing for TV improv. But again, you have somebody who is talented enough to play off of the reality that these guest performers are presenting. And that's something that was missing from here and something that was needed elsewhere. Yeah. I did think that in the right situation, this could be the best version of staged improv that is filmed in a good situation. Like something that I would like more than whose line is it anyway, which I loved growing up, but I don't really care to watch now. Yeah, it can be a lot to try to binge. It's nice in like small spurts, but that's, uh, yeah, it doesn't fully work all the time. Ian, do you have any final thoughts? Yes. There's just one thing I don't know if we've discussed much which is the last scene of the show is all four of the celebrities 
in a scene together, in a situation together. They're all dressed as pirates. They're all dressed as superheroes. They're all dressed as McDonald's-type employees. And there's usually only one ensemble member in there. And these scenes could have been fun and were always so sad because they followed the same format every time. It was, oh, thank God you're here. Sit down in these four chairs. Introduce yourselves one by one. Uh, One more joke that we go through one by one. End of scene. End of show. Like, it was always such a bad way to end it. Yeah. It really didn't work almost ever. The only time it almost did was that Shane Elizabeth, Tom Green like just make out party where it just right. And then Dave fully, fully jumped on the stage and yeah. started making out with them too, which was funny. Mm-hmm. But also you can only do that once. Like exactly. They peaked way too early, you know? Yeah. And then we were stuck with the rest of it. Ugh, those last scenes were always just so frustrating. Cause you knew exactly what was going to happen every single time. You did. So maybe they would take our notes, but probably not. Cause it was canceled. Ian, where can people find us? You can follow us on Instagram and still on Twitter, One and Done TV. You can email us, oneanddonepod at gmail.com. You can actually follow us on Mastodon now. So it's at One and Done TV, but I don't, there's also like some dot something something there. I, I don't really know how Mastodon works, but trying it out. Uh, you can email us and tell us why this is the best version of improv you've ever seen. And that not only is thank God you're here an incredible show, but the American version is the best version of the show. And we will argue with you over email, right, John? Oh yeah. We we've got some fighting words constantly. Uh, yeah. I mean, God, Fred Willard was disappointing to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Venmo me at Hamilton and uh, buy a Lodge Pan Scraper. Until then, Ian, on our Thanksgiving episode, I'm thankful for you. John, I'm thankful for me too. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.